Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. Today I am chatting with Michelle Gaines. Michelle is a certified conscious parenting coach, mother of two, and longtime educator and founder of a Memphis based education nonprofit. She's trained in the conscious parenting method, polyvagal theory, the neurobiology of trauma, and more. Michelle specializes in supporting high-functioning parents to cope with stress and or disconnection, maintain emotional regulation, and improve relationship satisfaction and communication in their families. Michelle also comes from a personal trauma history, a family legacy that includes addiction, abuse, and suicide. She knows what it is like to want differently for her children, and she has personally used conscious parenting and polyvagal theory approaches to increase connection and improve her family experiences. Michelle is currently working on a group course for parents that will be out this summer and will combine conscious parenting and polyvagal theory approaches. More details on this are available in the show notes. Today's episode talks about what polyvagal theory is and how it can be applied to everyday interactions. This was all very educational for me and I hope it is for you as well. Matters discussed and referenced in this episode are in no way to be construed or substituted as psychological counseling or any other type of therapy or medical advice. If you are in crisis, please dial 911. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. Let's dive right in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode. This podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi, Michelle. How are you today? Hey, I'm great. How are you? Good. I just want to make a quick note before we start. I might have some kids in the background either stomping or <laughs> barely sleeping because they're in bed, but they are above my office, so you may occasionally hear them singing or what have you. Which is perfect because mine <laughs> might, might make an entrance or at least an audio entrance in the second half. Yeah. So it'll be just the life perfect. Of all mom. <laughs> yeah. It's good. Okay, so today we are going to be chatting about polyvagal theory, which when you first mentioned it, Michelle, I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about? Right. But I find this really intriguing because I love to learn and I love to have an open mind. And I know there were just a few people that had mentioned that there wasn't a lot of evidence-based you know, information to back this up quite yet. But I really, I'm, I'm so intrigued and I'm excited for you to talk about this today. Yeah, me too. I'm excited to chat with you. So can you just tell us what exactly 
polyvagal theory is. Let's start there. Yes. Yes. So I'm going to dive into the three organizing principles shortly, which will give a little bit more context. But I first think it's important to actually acknowledge what polyvagal theory is not. And you already kind of mentioned it, right? Which it's not a treatment modality in and of itself. So it's also not evidence-based. It is, however, you know, just as its name implies, polyvagal theory, it's a set of theoretical principles. So basically what we're talking about when we talk about polyvagal theories, we're talking about the autonomic nervous system, how our autonomic nervous system or the ways it takes in information and activates responses, how we experience safety or stress in our bodies, and then how we experience connection or disconnection. So I'm hoping today we'll be able to chat a little bit about, you know, the introduction, the understanding of polyvagal theory, but mostly to inform the ways that we can really increase um, or improve connection and communication for us as parents. So that's how I'm hoping we'll be able to use it. I should probably also mention like the pioneers of the research. While it's not filed as evidence-based, it definitely has volumes of research attached to it. And the pioneers of the research are Stephen Porges, who originally introduced polyvagal theory in the 90s, but then also Deb Dana, who's a licensed clinical social worker, who's really credited with bringing a lot of this sort of dense research from Stephen Porges into the clinical world. And for anyone who wants to read more about the research or learn more about this lens to view um, our life experience through our autonomic nervous system, they can visit polyvagalinstitute.org, which is a, a great place to start to learn more. Yeah. So I wanted to chat. I said I would go into the three organizing principles, but it also dawned on me we should probably just talk about like, what is the autonomic nervous system? Yeah. I think <laughs> so many people are a great place to start. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So typically, you know, when people talk about the autonomic nervous system, we're talking essentially about two parts. We're talking about the sympathetic branch and the parasympathetic branch. Together, the sympathetic and that parasympathetic branch work to control and regulate involuntary functions of various things in our bodies, like our organs, our glands, our involuntary muscles throughout the body. Our autonomic nervous system is what helps us to do things like vocalization, swallowing, heart rate, respiration, and then also gastric and like intestinal processes, etc. And you might even know more than, than I do about those processes. But that's kind of what I know generally about the autonomic nervous system. But also, these the next question is like, okay, how do these two branches impact safety and stress or connection and disconnection? And it has to do with our spinal nerve that the sympathetic system runs through, and then also the parasympathetic through that vagus cranial nerve 10 that wanders throughout our body. And these work together really to regulate our safety and stress and our sense of connection or disconnection. So that's kind of generally the autonomic nervous system, but then this kind of feeds into the three organizing principles of polyvagal theory, which I can explain more of now. Excellent. So the the three organizing principles are hierarchy, neuroception, and co-regulation, and I actually love to explain them backwards because I think it just it just makes more sense to me. So I hope it does for other people. Starting with co-regulation, so that third principle And it is arguably, you know, the most important 
and basically we're mammals. Like one aspect that connects all mammals is um, our need for social engagement and our ability for social engagement. Not all animals have this. Evolutionarily, mammals have come to rely on connection with others, at, at least to an extent, for the service of survival. Mm-hmm. And I just like to point out here with this third principle, this co-regulation, that I think so many of us think that it's reasonable to expect, okay, like, yeah, we understand our infants, our fetuses, our young children require co-regulation, require proximity to a safe and nurturing adult to regulate their nervous systems, to experience safety. And that seems reasonable. And of course, we have like kangaroo care research and all that. But a lot of us, I think, and especially with the clients that I work with, have a harder time applying that biological imperative, that need for co-regulation to their own adult experience. And I don't know if you experience that at all, but I feel like culture tells us a little bit of like, we should be doing more on our own, or we should be better at something, or we shouldn't need to rely on others as much. And really, the important thing to drive home is that co-regulation is a biological imperative, beginning in utero, but spans a lifetime, and that all of us for all of our lives rely on proximity to secure attachments to, to be able to thrive and experience health. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that co-regulation is that third, and I'm working backwards, organizing principle. The next organizing principle is neuroception. And neuroception is the term that is used to describe our autonomic nervous system's threat detector. So this is just in the location of our brainstem. And it's the process by which our autonomic nervous system determines if it's safe or in danger. So neuroception in our brainstem is sussing out threats constantly for us in three ways. So inside our bodies, like pain, inflammation, dehydration, hunger, hormonal imbalance, all of these things. It's also sussing out cues of safety or danger from our outside environment. So things like loud sounds, unpredictable or unexpected motions, different elements we can experience through our five senses. Mm -hmm. And then also between nervous systems. So between other people or animals. So this could be like, you know, an eye roll from our partner that might be a cue of danger or even even other animals. So it doesn't even have to be humans, but between nervous systems. So neuroception is the threat detector in our brainstem that's sussing out threat in three places, in our, inside our bodies, outside in our environments, and then also between nervous systems. And another important part about neuroception is that it's a process that occurs below the function of conscious thought. And this is like the general theme with autonomic nervous system. Conscious thought is not involved. It's autonomic. So we need to bring a level of perception or awareness through the senses at the earliest point to be able to work with or or do anything, including give a new calibration to neuroception, to our, our sense of safety or our sense of danger. And these cues of safety and danger are largely calibrated and formed by experience. So they can be very individualized from person to person. That's why like dogs are a cue of safety for me. And I love my dog and I love seeing dogs. But for my aunt who experienced a dog bite early in childhood, she still sees dogs as a cue of danger, right? So that's her neuroception forming those those cues of danger and safety. 
So those are kind of the key points with neuroception. Are we good so far? We're good. We're, we're sticking with okay. you. Okay. I know Where it's a lot. Next? <laughs> okay, but we're coming to the last one. So hang in there. So we had, you know, co-regulation, which is the biological impar- imperative to um, rely on our social groups. Neuroception is that threat detector happening below conscious thought, sussing out cues of safety and threat inside our bodies, outside ner- outside environments, and between nervous systems. And then the last organizing principle is called hierarchy. And it stands for the three, again, involuntary states that our nervous systems move through and that we find ourselves in at any given time at multiple points of the day. So if our nervous system through neuroception detects enough cues of safety, our safety state of connection that we experience is called our ventral state or our ventral vagal state. Ventral vagal safety and connection, that's where we experience calm, joy, social engagement, overall just safety and connection, however that shows up for the individual. And if we have our states of active self-protection, so then if our system detects too many cues of threat or danger, then our threat responses are activated. And both ventral vagal safety and our threat responses are all at the autonomic nervous system level before conscious thought. So they're all in the service of survival, whether it's to be safely engaging to get our needs met with our social groups or reacting in a, in a protective way against a perceived threat. So the, the, the word hierarchy comes into play because we move in a predictable pattern through these three states. So first, we have that ventral vagal complex that I mentioned, that safety and connection. The imagery that Deb Dana uses is a ladder to kind of imagine the top of the ladder in that ventral vagal, vagal safety. And then if our neuroception detects cue of danger, whether it's a lion emerging from the jungle or the to-do list that is becoming too overwhelming or the running late to school in the morning, our system will give us, before conscious thought autonomically, our sympathetic state of hyperarousal. So this can be mobilization energy. It brings with it that fight-flight energy so we can, you know, fight-flee the threat or the lion. It brings like a faster pace, a quicker breathing, muscle tension, etc. But if the threat is too great, we move down our ladder even more. Neuroception has detected that the threat is too great to fight or flee. We can neither fight or flee the thing. Let's say like we've been pinned by the lion in our body. That's what our neuroception is kind of like experiencing. It activates our state of dorsal disconnection. This is our state of immobility, collapse, disappearing flavors can be all in the dorsal experience. And this is like our feign death response. So like, you know, if I've been pinned by the lion, I can't fight or flee it. I've been pinned. Maybe if I feign death, the lion won't eat me. <laughs> and, and then also what comes with it, because this part of our nervous system is unmyelinated or the vagus nerve is unmyelinated here below the diaphragm. So what this means, I know you know what this means, but what unmyelinated means is that things move very slowly. So our system slows. And on top of this, our system kind of numbs us in this state. Think of it like a hibernation almost. And I like to think through a compassionate lens that our system gives us this slowing and this numbing, which makes it difficult to retrieve thoughts and 
difficult to experience sensations and feelings that our system gives us this response so that if we're pinned and if the feigning death doesn't work and if we're about to be torn apart by the lion, our system spares us from the horror of that pain and and we're unable to retrieve our thoughts easily to be able to imagine what that pain would be like. So that evolutionarily there's a you know I just admittedly have to name that there's more research on the the playing dead as a survival response but I I really want to drive home how very much our systems and our responses and experience make sense and that when we are experiencing any one of these three states that there are reasons why and um reasons to explain why we're feeling what we're feeling and also solutions to move back to that ventral state of safety and connection. Another way to think of these states, because each of these three states can be very individualized, but they also tend to have particular feelings, behaviors, or thoughts that emerge from each of these states that we can all kind of relate to. A lot of us are really cortical and in touch with our thoughts. And so another way to think of these three states is in terms of how they show up in our bodies is like, what are the thoughts that emerge when I'm in this state? So if I think of my ventral state of safety and connection, this state is going to have thoughts of like, I can do this, like either I can do this and this is amazing, or this is hard, but I have the tools and the support system and the resources to be able to engage with this whatever challenge. Sympathetic, that hyper arousal, that mobilization energy is going to come with stories or thoughts of like, I need to do something right now. I need either need to fight the thing, flee the thing. I need to fix this. This has to be solved that quicker pace, right? A sense of urgency. I have to do something right now. And when experienced chronically, this state is where anxiety lives. So you might see some correlations there. And then from our dorsal state, our this is our state of active self-protection, activated by the most extreme threat. This is where our system feels our system feels trapped, powerless, completely alone, right? Pinned by the lion. From this, um, we get stories of I can't. There's no way. I'm all alone. This is hopeless. And when this is experienced for prolonged periods of time or chronically, this is where depression lives. So we, our, our autonomic states and functions can get stuck in this dorsal response. You know, there are, of course, so many other things I can say about hierarchy, but for, I just want to stress three things because I know I've said a lot. <laughs> um, and then we'll pause. But this, this lens of hierarchy or, or this shows us that, that there's a predictable order. Right, that we move through these three states in a reliable sequence many times a day. And when we think about us as parents, like this is not only our experience, but this is our kids' experience. They're moving through one of these three states. And I should say also there's three other combined states, but these are the three primary states. And that this is the predictable way in which they move down when we're increasing in dysregulation. And it's also the way we need to move up our ladder when we're coming from dysregulation into regulation or our state of ventral safety and connection. Also, you know, I want to drive home that our states again are involuntary. So they're activated before conscious thought. 
and we're not choosing these things. This is just what our body does. Okay. So if you, if anyone listening or if you, Lindsay, have experienced some of these things that feel familiar, just know that that's your body coming to your aid in the service of survival. There's nothing wrong with you. You're certainly not alone in these experiences. Everyone experiences this, including our children. So I feel like it's helpful to know to be able to support them. And then Third, and we'll get into this later, I'm sure, but third, it's our states that either ventral, sympathetic, or dorsal that largely, not entirely, but largely impact our stories, which are like our thoughts, our perspective, our outlook. And I talked about that briefly with kind of the the emergent stories that could come from each state. So that's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) We are getting deep on this Wednesday night at 8 p.m. when my brain is basically shut off. for the day. And you don't even have any visual cues of like, of my expression or showing you on my, yeah. (laughs) No, I'm over here taking notes. You should see me. (laughs) You'd be proud. (laughs) Okay. So now I kind of want to bring this around for the people listening. How does all of this, all of what you just explained to us, how does it relate to parenting? Yeah. Okay. I think that will help to kind of, you know, no, really. I mean, because I I really get what I I understand everything you're saying. I just want to bring it and connect it now and and how we would use that with our children and how it would relate to parenting. Yeah. 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 So all of us have an autonomic nervous system and all of us are moving through each of the three states daily, um, many times a day. So we're all experiencing, you know, flavors of ventral, sympathetic, and dorsal throughout our life. And so it helps to just have that understanding for to make way for compassion for ourselves and our own experience, and then also with how we support our kids. I think about, so I'm going to zoom out in terms of like, I see this being supportive to the parenting experience and relationship in three main categories, and then we can dive into a little bit more practical tools if you mm-hmm. feel like that would be helpful too. Yeah. Yeah, so I think of the the main three ways that that it's in, like how this relates to parenting and why 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 does it matter to know about the autonomic nervous system and polyvagal theory as a parent supporting my kid and supporting myself. So I think of three main benefits. The first is overall health. The two is a deeper connection. And number three is going to be supporting flexibility and resilience for our kids. So health, like we we all want our kids to be as healthy as possible. And because our autonomic nervous system controls and regulates our involuntary organs, everything that we talked about before, the more in sync that our bodies are with our autonomic functions, the more healthy our bodies are. So part of this understanding, this ventral vagal safety and regulation, like we need to know that our brain can only integrate all of its parts and functions when we are in a state of ventral vagal safety and connection. So this is when our child is in their happy place, their good place, they're calm, they're somewhere on the spectrum of calm and engaged to, you know, passionate and excited. And here their brain has the most chance of integrating its systems. When we are in dysregulation, so we are in one of those active states of self-protection, I really just want to 
make this non-pathologizing because it's definitely our body coming to our aid as it's giving us the sympathetic or dorsal response. It's nothing wrong with us. It's everything right with us as our body perceives in that moment meeting a perceived threat or danger. That when we are in chronic sympathetic, I already said like that's where anxiety lives. And when we're in chronic dorsal or our kids experience chronic dorsal, that that's where depression lives. And of course, anxiety and depression have a whole host of impacts to overall health, right, that come with them. So we just, we want our kids to be overall healthy. And our kids borrow, and so to speak, our, through co-regulation, a lot of our nervous systems in their early years as their neuroception is forming their initial cues of safety, cues of danger. So it impacts our overall health, it impacts our kids' overall health, and that it's, it's helping them form their nervous system as they co-regulate with us. So that, that number one, that overall health, we want our kids to be as healthy as possible. Then number two is that deeper connection. So what I'm talking about here really is like befriending our individual nervous system and the nervous systems of each of our individual children who are going to be differently wired, right? And have different needs than our own. And like when we are in active states of self-protection, whether it's sympathetic or dorsal, our body is trying to keep us alive. So our body's not really making space the way it does when we're in social engagement, ventral safety and connection. It's not making space for things like problem solving or collaboration or empathy or curiosity or compassion, any of those things, right? We know when we are like that sympathetic, like I need to fix this right now. Like I'm not really seeing my partner <laughs> when I'm, when I'm experiencing that. I'm not really making space to share in a moment that's present focused with my kid. So the same goes for our kids too. And so if we are able to nurture their ability to return to ventral vagal safety when inevitably dysregulated, because the goal is not to be regulated 100% of the time, but just have that flexibility back when we experience moments of dysregulation, then we have the opportunity and the space to both be in regulation, both be in ventral vagal safety and connection to really get to know who our kids are, you know, when they're in their safety and connection. We can like see, nurture, support their their interests, their passions, and their talents rather than needing to fix something or be sympathetically charged or charged with dorsal energy, which, you know, is a disconnected space from our kids. So just all those micro moments, as they call it, like micro moments of that connection is really, I think, what most of us are looking for in a meaningful and authentic life. And so having space to create those micro moments of safety and connection, those micro moments in that shared ventral experience allows for that deeper connection. And then I kind of alluded to it already, the number three, why, why is this important for parenting is really for that flexibility and resilience. And when I do values work with parents, most parents have a value that's somewhere in the flavor of like, I want my kid to be flexible, to be resilient, to meet a challenge, to be able to overcome it, to have confidence through difficult situations, to know that they're going to be okay. You know, some flavor of that. And when we, through our own work too, which it starts with us, but when we can guide our dysregulated child 
back to their sense of regulation as a co-regulation resource for them, we are teaching them system resilience. We're giving their system experiential evidence, muscle memory, whatever you want to call it, to know that there's a path back from a state of dysregulation to not get chronically stuck in a sympathetic state or a dorsal state. And we're showing them like, hey, it's okay. It's he- it's healthy even to experience these challenges, failures, dysregulation, whatever. The point's not to be, again, like regulated all the time, but it is important to be able to function and to be able to move flexibly, including having those pathways back to ventral safety and connection. So those are the three things that I pull out as the general why this is connected to parenting to keep our kids healthy, to have that deeper connection, and then to have to give our kids flexibility and resilience or at least support it. That was great description. So can you tell us now, can you give us an example? Just I'm gonna have you pick the example. I know we have okay. a lot in the um the community questions that we can we can dive into after this. But yeah. Yeah, just give us like a, a little example of how you would use this with your child. Yeah, sure. So I also want to talk just briefly about how that a little bit more around how our states, our autonomic states then create our stories, just because it they also create more than our stories. And I feel like this is helpful to understand mm-hmm. contextually for ourselves, but then also how we show up for our kids. And And this has to do with the flow of information that travels between our brain and our bodies. So Generally speaking, 20% of information that flows between our brain and our bodies is through efferent fibers, which means it goes brain down to body. And 80% of it, though, goes up from the body through sensory afferent fibers in the body up into the brain. So the flow, if we kind of imagine a brain, and I can send you, maybe to include in the notes, um, a YouTube video of Dan Siegel walking through his hand model of the brain that will maybe be a, a good visual for anyone interested yeah. to see. Yeah. But this this 80% of the information is flowing up from the body at the autonomic level. And at the brainstem, we have that neuroception, which we already talked about. We have perception, which is the point at which we begin to get a sense of our autonomic state through our senses. And then we have autonomic state activation. All of that happens involuntarily at the brainstem. And then feelings and behaviors are are happening in the limbic system and kind of the midbrain. It's working with a few other parts I'm kind of oversimplifying, but just to get the general idea that our, our feelings and behaviors almost come out of that autonomic state. And then our, our cortex makes associ- associations with thought. And then I already mentioned how our prefrontal cortex is the, the part in charge of integrating our, bar- our brain parts and functions. And it, it only can integrate when we're experiencing enough ventral or regulation online. So it's helpful to know that a polyvagal theory or an autonomic nervous system informed lens will target and prioritize focus on the autonomic state because we kind of see the feelings, behaviors, and stories from a majority perspective, 80%, right, coming out of the autonomic state. So it's going to be much more effective to treat the state and have the feelings, behaviors, and story follow. And I'll give you an example of that. So like if I'm in ventral safety and connection, I'm in my happy place, I'm feeling good, my ventral is activated. My feelings coming out of this or my emotions might be like joy, connection, I don't know, happiness, (laughs) 
curiosity, collaboration, some of the things we already mentioned. My mm-hmm. behaviors might be that I'm smiling, that I'm tilting my head side to side as I'm engaging with you and listening, that my shoulders are relaxed. Maybe I'm sitting back in an Adirondack chair, like just relaxing, right? Those would be the behaviors you'd see. And then the story, if I simplify it, might be something like, life is good. I'm okay. Things are right, you know, whatever. But if we go to a sympathetic sequence, if the sympathetic state is activated, our feelings here, just like the feelings for the most part of our children, will be feelings of agitation, anger, fear, frustration, feeling misunderstood, right? Behaviors might be more aggressive behaviors, furrowed brow, clenched jaw, tense shoulders, maybe with our kids, especially, especially our young kids, maybe they're getting aggressive. If they have siblings, maybe they're hitting, you know, biting, whatever it is. And the story, whether it's our story or our kids might be, this is unfair. I hate this. This always happens. I need to fix this. What do I do now? You know, there's a sense of urgency around it. And then of course, the dorsal sequence would be the dorsal state is activated. The feelings here might be sad, disconnected, slow, numb, Behaviors might be hunched shoulders, downward cast face, avoiding eye contact, slowing speech, quiet voice. And I'm sure like, I don't know if we, you can imagine yourself feeling this, but I, I can also sure imagine like my kids in this place when they go to that dorsal place with their bodies. And the story here might be like, what's the point of even telling you? Like, mm-hmm. this is always the same. It's hopeless. Okay. So I think it's just important to know that sequence or that flow. And that's not to say at all that going the other direction and prioritizing treatment anywhere above the state, I'm saying above because that's where it is in the brain, but it doesn't work because 20% of the, the information flows downward. So it certainly can be helpful to anchor in a thought, you know, or to talk through something or to target certain behaviors or have emotionally focused work. All of that is meaningful. I'm just going, when I get into specific tools that I'm going to apply through a polyvagal theory lens, we're going to be targeting the intervention around the autonomic state. I think that's just kind of important to distinguish. Okay. So back to your question, which was, (laughs) what is an example of how to use this with our kids, right? Did I get that? Yeah. So we're kind of headed in the tips and tricks categories. <laughs> and I just like to mention that for me, there are so many tips, tricks, things to know for every scenario. And, you know, I totally find a lot of these things helpful. But I also just personally like to offer tools for myself and for clients that are a little bit more general that can be applied to many different scenarios. One, so that it makes it easy for me to remember. I don't need to remember all the different things for every different scenario. But two, it can be applicable to multiple settings. So whether it's tantrums or sibling rivalry or disagreements with my partner, I kind of have a general framework that I can anchor in when I may be experiencing dysregulation, have a little bit less access to my prefrontal cortex to be able to think through everything and retrieve thoughts, right? So I wanted to offer kind of three steps as we move through an example. And one, the first step is personal regulation. The second step is focusing on the state as the point of intervention. And then a, a you know second step B could be a mantra, self-talk, anchor thought that you include there as you focus on the state. And then the third step is what I call and what Deb Dana calls the three C's. So I'll go into each of these, but let's come up with an example. The most common example that I get is, you know, 
reactivity. Like a parent comes and says, I want to work on my reactivity. I'm saying things that I promised myself I would never say. I'm doing things that I never thought I would do around my kid. So how do I pivot? And what the child is doing is really irking me. Maybe it's a a loud noise or an annoying behavior, whatever. So a lot of this it's it's not like a quick fix <laughs> response for a lot of this because first we have to work on our own, as I said, the first step, that personal self-regulation at okay. the beginning. Okay. But then how am I going to support my kid? So if my kid is throwing a tantrum, let's say throwing a toy across the room, okay, maybe no other sibling is involved in this scenario. First, I'm going to check in with myself and see like, okay, am I activated now? Am I in a sympathetic state of like, needing to do something urgently right away where I'm not focusing clearly and able to empathize and support my kid fully. So the first step is going to be personal regulation. And if we have time, we can talk about that in a little bit more detail, but try to bring enough. It doesn't, I don't know if you'd be able to get totally ventral while kids are throwing things and dysregulated and screaming or whatever, (laughs) but like enough ventral online to feel like I can do this. Like, yeah, this is tough. This is hard. My kid, my kid's having a hard time, but I can do this. Okay. And then the next step is focusing on the state. So one caveat, I guess I should say for the first step is, you know, obviously if there's any safety issues, we're going to intervene and make sure everyone's physically Mm -hmm. safe. Right. Right. (laughs) But assuming everyone's physically safe, that second step is the focusing on the state as the point of intervention. So We have a tendency, myself included, especially when dysregulated, to focus on those emergent properties of the state, to look at maybe it's the emotion, maybe it's the anger that my kid is expressing that is actually making me a little uncomfortable that they're so angry. Or maybe it's the behavior, maybe it's the throwing things and I I need to, to like fix this behavior, I need to have a behavioral intervention right away. Or maybe it's the words, maybe as the kid's throwing something, the words are, I hate you. You're the worst mom. And and that feels really, or I hope you die. You know, something really dysregulating, really unkind words that can be really activating for us. And I'm going to encourage people through this set of tools that I'm offering or these steps to focus on the state, to not go to the emergent properties, like try not to focus on the emotions, on the behaviors and the thoughts or stories that are coming from the kid and see this as dysregulation. So if I were to look at this picture, I would see very clearly that my kid is in a sympathetic state of hyperarousal. They're angry, they're frustrated, they're fighting me mostly. Maybe they're also a little bit fleety, but they're mostly in this fight or flight sympathetic mobilization charge. And everything that comes out of that is going to be in the service of their survival. And then With mantras, self-talk, anchor thoughts, and that sort of thing, I really encourage people to find things that work individually for them. But if that's that's something that's supportive for people, something like a, I'm a good parent, or this is tough, I can do this, my child is dysregulated, my child needs help, continue to keep your child separate and their state separate from the feelings, behaviors, story that they're exhibiting. And then the the next step would be, okay, now what do I do? How do I intervene? And again, it's not a quick fix. And so much of this takes nervous system attunement to know the just right or the Goldilocks place of what this third step is, which is what I call in Deb Dana calls the three C's. And those are connection, context, and choice. 
So moving towards supporting this other person, this little one, our child, who's experiencing this flood of sympathetic hyperarousal. Their system is feeling so unsafe that our systems don't know the difference between fighting or fleeing a lion and, you know, wanting the red train when we got the blue train. Our system, like our autonomic nervous systems don't know the difference. So like, that's a huge source of compassion for our kids and of course for ourselves when we experience that too. So the place the three C's come from is the antidote to the hallmarks of trauma or a threat response, which are when we are feeling threatened and needing a, a survival response activation, we're feeling isolation. So we're feeling alone and dangerously vulnerable. We're feeling overwhelm. Our systems can't manage the current circumstance. And we're feeling immobilized. We're feeling powerless in the face of that extreme threat. So the three C's are kind of the antidote to that isolation, overwhelm, and immobilization. And we're going to give our kid the just right amount of connection. And it can be any order, but I find that this order just works for me and clients. So starting with connection, starting with connection for for regulation. And this can can really look a lot of ways. So this can be Oh, let's see, connection through proximity. It can be connection through gentle touch. It can be connection through validation in our words, like some sort of connection to show that child that he or she is not alone. That, and that might look like, you know, me moving closer. And maybe if my, this works for my child, maybe putting my hand on the top of his, his back or his shoulder and rubbing and saying, Oh, I know I'm right here. You're so mad that you got the blue train and you really wanted the red train. Gosh, I know what it feels like to be so mad about that. It's so mad. Really kind of mm-hmm. validating and creating connection. Like you're not alone. You're not wrong. You're not shameful for, for experiencing this response. And then moving into that context. So like making meaning in that child appropriate way of their disorganized overwhelm. So, you know, explaining like, gosh, yeah. And we kind of already said it, like you really wanted the the train and I'm happy to get you the blue train now. Would you like to play with it now? You know, and then we're kind of going into the next one, which is choice. In that example, there isn't a whole lot of context to give, but maybe depending on your child, there is more context. Maybe you could give a story that helps them kind of regulate to to, to let them know that what they're experiencing makes sense. Like, oh, you're feeling so angry. What your body is feeling is anger. Yeah, kind of that name it to tame it, Dan Siegel tool. And this is a place when we do it for ourselves where maybe there's something to look up. So like if there were ever a context that we needed for our own experience or that our kid needed, like in this example, it's not super applicable, but context is often a place where it's like, okay, this might be an area where I need to look up more. Like, Mm -hmm. is my child experiencing ADHD? Maybe I'm going to look that up and give myself some more context. Is my child child a a neurodiverse or have more sensory sensitivities? So things like that. And there are, you know, a million things that we could have to, to look more for in the context category. But then the last one I already kind of alluded to, which is to bring in more of that choice. So if one of the hallmarks of trauma or threat response is that immobilization and powerlessness, how can we bring in and infuse a little bit of that just right amount of choice? Mm-hmm. So would you like me to get the train now? Would you like to go get the train? Would you like to come outside with me and play something different? Should we read a book about trains? You know, mm-hmm. like whatever mm-hmm. the kind of age appropriate 
choices are to be able to let that nervous system say and and experience like okay i'm not powerless here i do have choice i'm i'm safe in the container if you will of this caregiver who's giving me context and i'm i'm not alone i'm connected to my body i'm connected to the safe person i'm not too much for my parent and and now i can move into more of this ventral space of safety and connection now okay so i have a question about this yeah so in your three steps when you're the parent and you realize in the moment that you do not have regulation you are yes. very much dysregulated yes you know for whatever reason what is it that you suggest in that moment before addressing the situation like do you suggest going into a different room, taking deep breaths? Is there anything that you can yeah. do personally? I mean, obviously this takes work, especially if you know you have certain yes. triggers and things like that. But is there anything that you can do while you're working on that dysregulation as a general whole that you can apply to you know certain things that happen throughout the day to kind of bring yourself down to a more ventral state before addressing your children? Yes. And so this is such a super important question and such a common one when we get here. And it's a lot of the work that I, just as you alluded to, like takes time, isn't a quick fix. And also is just like with everything most helpful when being addressed in advance of the incident. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, there are going to be regulation tools that are supportive to individual systems, as well as general regulation tools or grounding tools that can bring some ventral online that typically work for a lot of us. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk about regulation resources, and a lot of this, I'll, I'll actually map out with clients, and we'll map out what are their regulation resources in different states, so that they can have this as a resource going into challenging situations, um, and practice this. But there are, you know, two states that your system is experiencing in dysregulation for the most part. You're experiencing that hyperarousal in that sympathetic place. And then in dorsal, it's hypoarousal where things are much slower. And then beyond that, there's regulation resources we can do by ourselves. And then there's regulation resources we can do through co-regulation in proximity to a, a safe attachment person. Maybe it's our partner, friend, et cetera. And so you know, what we're talking about in this scenario probably is going to be like the options are probably going to be some version of a, a self-regulation, right? I don't know if we'd have the ability to co-regulate with someone or something right away in that moment. But the short answer is it depends. And then I, but I also want to give a couple categories for people to consider and even a couple tools that can be implemented, you know, immediately. So, the categories that tend to work for everyone are really somatic categories. And one is breath. So when we're in sympathetic, our heart rate increases, our respiration is impacted. So in sympathetic, we're going to want to engage in breath that is more slowing to slowly safely show our system in that hyper arousal that it's safe to come into less mobilization. Okay. And I'm going to stick with sympathetic in this example, just because for most people, they're in this example, or a kid having a tantrum essentially is going to bring up a, a sympathetic response versus a, a dorsal disconnection response. We're going to need to fix something right away. 
And so our breath, slowing our breath can be really helpful. If it were dorsal, we'd want to have more of an activated breath. So kind of sharp inhales, sharp exhales, maybe even longer inhales to show our system that it's safe to move out of hypo arousal into more mobility, right? So we have breath, we have touch. So there can be places in our body that are helpful to touch. If we're in sympathetic, some people like a self hug for both sympathetic and dorsal actually, but you know, you can kind of hug yourself and like show yourself either that you're slowing and coming into a bit more stillness if it's hyper arousal or begin to feel that gentle touch of your own system if you're in dorsal movement. So like discharging, when we're talking about regulation, we're coping with stress, but we're doing it in a way different than isolated coping. Regulating is managing stress, but with processing the dysregulation, okay? Instead of numbing through some other coping, not that one is better or worse, but I'm talking specifically about regulation. Mm -hmm. And so if we can move our bodies in a way that helps to discharge, so like, you know, sympathetic is really a part of a combined state of play. So if we can dance or shake or, you know, things that, that animals in the wild do to, to regulate their systems and bring them back into homeostasis, but that aren't as socially acceptable for us. Like, you know, anything that we're like dancing and shaking and like (sighs) even vocalizations, a sigh can be made in all of the states, like a ventral sigh, ah, a sympathetic sigh, and then dorsal sigh, like, "Mm," you know, so that those vocalizations are another one with some movement also involved. And then if you have any thoughts or self-talk or mantras that come that can help you, those are kind of supportive categories. So in the moment, you know, I think just acknowledging if you haven't done any prep work, like, just acknowledging, oh my gosh, I am sympathetically charged right now. Like I am in the state of survival, protecting myself against a threat. I might even see my kid as a threat in this moment. Just acknowledging that is a is a great first place to start. And and if you have given some thought to these categories of like, okay, breath and touch and movement, sound sites, any sensory things, and then thoughts or self-talk mantras that we can engage in to kind of help bring enough ventral online to feel in connection with our child to support them through the behavior or through the experience instead of against our child or needing to dominate our child or whatever it is. That's kind of generally what to do in the moment. And of course, if you've done some of this in advance, you have your your map that you maybe you've done with me <laughs> and you have your your tools that work individually for you beyond some of the things in the categories that I mentioned. Excellent. So now I have one, I guess, I mean, it's tied into everything, but now you have me thinking. So, (laughs) so when you're postpartum, I mean, obviously our hormones are completely haywire, right? Yeah. And I have personally have struggled, you know, randomly postpartum after each of my kids. And with each one, it was different. Right. And I think that that has to do with hormone levels, you know, depends, but does that make us do, do the hormones make it hard for us to regulate? And does that, can that, and I don't know, you might not know the answer to this question, but does it change after, 
after your different children. So like, for example, if, you know, my, after my first, I had no issues. I felt like I was able to regulate things didn't really bother me. After my second, I realized, oh, wow, I feel really dysregulated and get really quick to anger things like a messy house or, um, you know, certain things really set me off. But then, oh, I have my third and oh, I'm not really experiencing that as much this time. Like, can that happen? And it be related to hormones. Yeah. Well, hormones are absolutely a part of the autonomic experience, particularly at the neuroception level. Like, you know, that's going to be an internal experience where if our hormones are not regulated in their own way, I guess for lack of a better word, like that's going to be perceived danger at the internal level. Like our our system is vulnerable, especially if it's, you know, the cortisol hormone at play, like that's going to be associated with anxiety and a sympathetic response at minimum, right? So hormones absolutely come into play in terms of system activation and the autonomic experience. And like the next part of the question is like, how do they impact the ability to regulate, you know? Mm -hmm. And just like, you know, I want to expand that because I think it's a super important specific topic that I think a lot of women, myself included, can even relate to. But if we expand that to the general experience of the perceived dangers internally, we can also then say like, well, does inflammation, does pain, does hunger, do all of these things make it more difficult to regulate? And absolutely. So, you know, just like we said at the beginning, like we are diving into a really big general topic that some people dedicate their whole lives to, you know, specific parts to researching. And I really want to underscore that um, I'm not here today saying that this lens is the end all be all. And it makes me think of another question I get, which is like, I have X label or X condition or belong to this Mm. community. Will this work for me? And the truth is that there, you know, it's like community care, a team approach. There are going to be many things. That's why I said like context might be something to look out for. If you're experiencing hormonal imbalance, this would be a great place at the context level to be like, okay, well, I need support with getting my hormones in balance and whatever that looks like and how that feels for me. So I do just want to mention that, that whatever it is, whether it's a neurodiverse child or someone with ADHD or chronic pain, you know, like the, or, or pelvic floor dysfunction, whatever the thing is that is impacting your system's ability to, to maintain ventral vagal safety and making it difficult to, to regulate when dysregulated, you know, it's important to seek out support for, for those components as well. Yeah, I get that. All right. Do you want to, is there anything that we, that you should touch on? I'm just going to dive into just a few questions because I know we're running over a bit. Is there anything that you wanted to tie home before we go into those questions? I guess I just want to underscore how very much everyone's experience makes sense. And that so many people feel like they are thinking a certain thing and their body is going a different way or, or having a different response, or, you know, they want to be doing something or engaging in a certain way, or they know they used to feel a certain way and they feel like their body is not showing up for them. Some version of 
there's something wrong with me. I'm broken. I don't make sense. Like I'm all alone. And I, I just want people to know as kind of a, a parting thought before we dive into the questions that there's a reason that their body is showing up and giving them these responses. And it is for the sake of survival. And it certainly doesn't mean there's anything wrong with, with them. Yeah, that's great. Okay. So we have, I'm just going to pick out a few of these, you know, a lot of them are, are a little bit redundant. And I know you gave those great general practical tips, which I think could apply to some of these. Yeah. So let's see here. Okay. Let's go with this one. Is saying no harmful? How can I say no in a different way? Mm. First off, like no, in general, generally speaking, saying no is not harmful. I think a lot of us know that every time we say no, we're saying yes to something else. So what is it that we're focusing on saying yes to? I'm wondering here if there's any parent or mama dysregulation around saying no, because it can it can be really dysregulating for a lot of us based on our past experiences to hold a boundary, right? And to maintain a boundary. And so boundaries are really important and we could spend a whole episode on boundaries. But I also just want to say from a polyvagal or an, an autonomic nervous system lens for children, actually having a parent say no in, in a way that offers context in a child-appropriate way or a child-age-appropriate way is actually incredibly regulating because our kids, their systems know that they are vulnerable and that they're relying on these adult caregivers for safety and protection. And when we as adults can have these strong and sturdy boundaries, what we're showing our kids, even if they don't say, hey, you know, thanks so much for saying no to the third cookie, even if they don't say that, their system knows that what we're doing is we're keeping them safe and that they can count on us. So I really want to empower the the boundary aspect of what I think I'm hearing in this question about saying no for certain things. And then I would also just loop in these kind of three steps, which is mm-hmm. what I already mentioned, like check in with yourself. What's the dysregulation around saying no? What's the insecurity around saying no? And then make room for your child to have whatever state they're going to have. Maybe they're mad that you say no. Mm -hmm. And you can use these three C's to really make it an opportunity for connection, even if it's not the answer that the child wants to hear initially. Yeah, I I love that. All right. So this this one is something that really, I feel like, speaks to me. So I'd I'd love to hear your answer on this one. So Rebecca says, I was raised in a yelling household. I don't want to be a yeller. How do I pivot? Mm, Yes. So here in this question, I can so empathize with this, not only with the specific yelling. Okay. Mm -hmm. So yelling is kind of a piece I want to address. And then also with this I was raised with yelling. I was raised with X. It could be anything. I was raised with something that I I don't want to bring into the family that I'm creating. Okay. So there's kind of those two layers that I'm hearing in that Mm -hmm. question. And first off, going back to these steps, like let's talk about yelling. What is the, is there any dysregulation on the part of this parent around yelling. And what is this a really scary thing? Is yelling, is this activating her nervous system because yelling was really dangerous in the past? And with yelling specifically, I know this is kind of a 
a very specific tip or tool, but generally speaking, I really like to normalize the functions of our bodies. <laughs> and yelling is something that our body does. And so there has to be a reason for it. And mm-hmm. so to make something very clear through context, what I say in my house about yelling and what I have supported clients in doing is some version of, you know, we yell when we are in danger and we need help. So that's the point of yelling. Yelling is actually very good. It's very helpful for us to be able to yell because when we're in danger, whether it's we're hurt or we're unsafe, then um, we yell and we need help. So that's why we do that. And so sometimes just that context piece can bring some of the dysregulation around the behavior of yelling into a little bit more of an understanding of like, oh, okay, yelling's not all bad. Here's the reason for it. Here's how I'm going to use it. And then it also is that low hanging language. Like, you know, when the kid's yelling, are you in danger? Do you need help? Oh, I don't think so. So, so we don't yell. We yell if we're, or we don't yell in this situation. We're yelling only if we're in danger, if we're hurt or if we need help. Right. Okay. So that's how I would address just specifically the yelling. And then, you know, this other, this bigger idea of, I don't want to be a yeller. How do I pivot? And this is going, you know, this potentially could just be an opportunity to explore like what are my past experiences that were not supportive to my autonomic experience that were actually incredibly dysregulating, maybe even chronically dysregulating for me. And how can I slowly create more cues of safety around how my body at an autonomic level, at a below conscious thought without any of my choice is responding to this yelling or to this whatever it is that I'm trying not to include with my with my new family I'm creating and that is is the work that I do <laughs> and and just kind of moving through neural exercises that can reshape the autonomic patterns that our systems have guided by neuroception around cues of safety or cues of danger yeah yeah All right. So how about this one? So, and this can be the last one. I know we're going over here. So my son yells, go away to every emotion, pain, anger, sadness. What should I say or do? Yeah. So my son yells. So I'm going to come back to my three steps. (laughs) So my first one is, you know, One, like my son yells. Okay. So first I want to acknowledge that that is a behavior and I'm, I'm first going to say like, okay, am I experiencing dysregulation around the yelling? You know, it's kind of similar to what we just talked about. Like, am I experiencing dysregulation? Do I need to regulate myself? Okay. But then we're going to focus on the state. So why is a child yelling? Are they in danger and do they need help? Mm -hmm. If not, they're they're yelling because they don't have the skills to communicate their need. And so um, I invite people to think about like, what is the cue of danger or the need that activated the sympathetic response we're focusing on that then mm-hmm. from which the, the yelling emerged? Yeah. And so, okay, if we're going to focus on the sympathetic state, what, why are they yelling? Are they yelling because, well, here it says pain, anger, sadness. And so... I'm wondering if there's some dysregulation on the part of the parent here in this example around the emotions, which are emergent properties of this child's sympathetic state. And is there maybe work on the part of the parent that 
this person could do to kind of build some tolerance around these emotions and some understanding just that these emotions are just emotions and they're emerging from this state. And so what we have an opportunity to do is support this child into regulation and to understand these emotions that are going on. Obviously pain, like we're going to treat the pain. (laughs) We're going to minimize the pain. If it's like physical pain, if it's emotional pain, you know, same thing, but it's just going to be a different approach. So the other thing, though, that I want to um, mention, it's not a majority of kids but or people, but there's also a good amount of, of kids, and it's called a bunch of different things, you know, deeply feeling, highly sensitive. Children who say, go away, as in like, leave me, you know, obviously leave me alone, mm-hmm. um, get away from me. But to not take the bait and to really like to to look at that and say like, okay, focus on the state. If they're yelling, it's probably sympathetic, right? Mm-hmm. If it's if it's yeah. dorsal disconnection, like and it's a go away and they're make, not mm-hmm. making eye contact with you and their eyes are down, that's going to be a different way of treating the state with the kid. But if but here it's sympathetic, right? And so we're just going to move through the C, the three C's, yeah. knowing our kid. And some of that's going to be a play. Some of that's going to be a trial and error. Sometimes we're going to move in to pat their back and they're going to you know flinch and say, "Don't touch me." And we're going to like, "Okay, that touch didn't work out." <laughs> yeah, every kid's going to be different. Yeah. yeah, and just knowing that that they're saying go away, they're experiencing emotions of pain, anger, sadness, whatever, but the state is sympathetic. And what support they need is to move out of that sympathetic state if we're focusing on the state and to give them, you know, the perfect blend of their just right amount of context, connection, and choice is the way I would go about it. Yeah, I I really love this. I've really enjoyed this conversation just because this, I think this really helps to, you know, as parents and, you know, obviously as a mama four over here, it's really about survival, like through the day. Mm-hmm. And so there's all these different things that happen through the day. And, you know, your kids will do a million things that are not going to be helpful, right? I mean, they're not here to necessarily be super helpful. And so no. just kind of understanding that they are dysregulated and, you know, where it's all coming from and that we too experience these same things all of the time, I think is so helpful, you know, and to just have those like simple tools that are very general, you know, you can really apply those to so many different situations. Yeah, it's been really great. Oh, good. Yes. I'm so glad because being able to, you know, our kids are going to experience pain. They're going to experience challenges just like we are. And the ways that we can support them and show their system that it's, you know, safe and we're here for them, we're here with them as they move back into safety and move back into possibility and choice and agency and begin to understand their experience. I just also feel like it goes back to that second why, that deeper connection, Mm -hmm. you know, like here I am for you, a resource for you, little one, and you're not alone. And this is the human experience. And it's also, you know, we didn't even really touch on the ways this can help us as parents, as us as mothers and Mm -hmm. us in connection with our friends and our partners and our mothers too, which it, it can be there all as well. But yeah, that deeper connection whether it's through what's already established as ventral vagal safety and connection and you know our, we're sitting in that presently with our kids or we're able to get that connection through regulating out of a 
painful or challenging mm-hmm. situation. It's just, yeah, yeah, that opportunity for deeper connection is huge for me. Yeah, it's great. All right. Okay, Michelle. So let's end. And I'm going to ask you, um, these are two uh, random questions. These are questions I ask all of my podcast guests. And it doesn't have to do with anything that we talked about today. Uh, The first question is, if you could give one piece of advice to mothers, what would it be? Yes, I would give this to myself too. And it's kind of a version of putting your mask on first and and having self-care, but Mm -hmm. specifically like the way that you befriend and nurture your relationship with yourself is the same level of connection, support that you're able to provide for your child. I love that. That's great. The second question is, if you could make one dinner for your entire (laughs) family and it's something that everybody would eat and it's rather quick and easy, what would it be? Well, it's a crock pot thing. So I don't know if that counts as quick, uh, but it's well, like yeah, low it maintenance throughout it's, the day. It's quick okay. in the beginning of the day and then it's then it's done. It's great. Yeah. The one that we do, I actually have two really picky eater kids and one that like most of the time, honestly, we're making a different dinner for them than what my husband and I are eating. But one that they will eat that we all eat is tortilla soup in the crock oh, pot. Yeah. And we do, so we do slow cooked chicken breasts and we put in, in the morning, we'll do even frozen chicken breasts, chicken stock and diced either serrano or jalapenos and onions. Mm -hmm. And we'll let that simmer at least six hours, kind of depends on what the the chicken needs. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, pull the chicken and then um, we'll just have fixings to, to, garnish everything with. So we'll make a pot of rice and for the kids, you know, they still have their like three section separated plate. (laughs) So we'll do rice with some broth for them. And then a different section will have chicken and then a different section will have avocado. And then for my husband and I, you know, we'll do the soup and over rice with cilantro and avocado and lime and tortilla chips. Mm. And it's just one that is a crowd pleaser. Yeah. And I think kids just love having like the, the choices. So we do like a similar, like taco bowl, you know, and, and they just love being like, Oh, look at there's cheese, there's avocado, there's sour cream, there's, you know, uh, taco sauce, there's like all these different things that they can add onto their personal bowl, you know, granted two of my kids, pick the same thing every time, but you know, maybe one day they'll venture out there. The choices are endless. Yeah. <laughs> um we'll see. But yeah, that's that's a great idea. I'm I'm storing these dinners in my back pocket for when we do our kitchen reno and oh, I right. need crock pot ideas because they're so easy, you know? Yeah. I can just throw everything yeah. in there and then dinner's ready at the end of the day. Yes. All right, Michelle. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been so helpful and I hope it's been helpful for some of the people listening as well. Yes, me too. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. 
If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.